Bibles, and let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, still working our way through some of the miracles of Jesus. And here we see Jesus cleansing the man with a withered hand. Matthew 12, I failed to look it up in the Pew Bibles, but uh, in your Pew Bibles, it's right after Matthew 11. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. I don't know if some of you homeschoolers from one county were going to get that joke or not. I didn't know. So, uh, a homeschooler, I meant public schooler. Sorry. I'm sorry. I just realized. <laughs> I was supposed to be making fun of myself. All right, verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law and how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I'll tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal a heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. And Father, as always, we ask that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet, our mouths and our entire being, that we will go, to, go in obedience to Christ. May we see the freedom and peace and rest we have in Jesus and in nothing else. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Are you seated? At the 1980 presidential debate between then incumbent President Jimmy Carter and his opponent, soon to be President Ronald Reagan, uh, Carter was going his way about telling the world how awful Reagan was, as you get in these sort of debates. And he was, he was trotting out the same old accusations that had been the central focus of his campaign, by which, in a single sentence, Reagan undid all of it that Carter had developed by simply saying, well, there you go again. There you go again. I've heard this before, I've read this book before, and it is as tiresome now as it was the first 100 times. I feel very similar to that every time I open the Gospels and read of one of the Sabbath controversies. Here we go again. Jesus does something whom I'm convincedly becoming convinced purposely to antagonize the religious folks. And Jesus demonstrates that the good news is not in the law, but in the Savior. 
Notice the harassment, verses 1 to 8. Now, in order to appreciate what it is that we have going on here, we have to look at the immediate context of Matthew. Matthew 11 ends with Jesus drawing the, the Jews to himself. Notice, going back to chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That is his conclusion after he, he has a rather a hot chapter where he's condemning various cities, and he, he concludes by, by begging people, if you would but come, if you would but come to me, you would find rest for your weary souls. And it is not an accident then that as you come into chapter 12, we are uh, confronted with another Sabbath controversy. Think about it. Chapter 11 ends with an exhortation to find rest in Christ. Chapter 12 begins with a story of people complaining Jesus was not resting on the Sabbath. Both the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 are all on the question, wherein lies our true rest? In fact, you'll notice there in Jesus' words about finding rest in him, he says, uh, come all who labor and are heavy laden. And clearly Matthew wants us to see that one of those heavy burdens that we carry upon our back can very easily be religious legalism and the religious legalism placed upon them by the religious elites. Thus, the end of chapter 11 uh, tells us where true rest can be found, that is Christ. And the beginning of chapter 12 tells us where a false rest can be found, and that isn't a system or religion or anything like that. So what does Jesus do? He's walking through the fields. That's bad enough on the Sabbath, but maybe he hasn't, they check his uh, GPS watch. He hasn't uh, walked too, too much so far. You can walk on the Sabbath. You can only take so many steps on the Sabbath. I don't know where that is in the Old Testament, but it is in the Old Traditions. That's there somewhere, I guess. And so while he's out walking, his disciples go through the grain fields and pull some of the grain so they may eat. Now, we need to pause there and say that may be weird to us. That was very common at this time. It was a way of providing for the impoverished. It, it, it was welfare that required some work. So you could go through the fields and you would still have to reap and harvest in some sense, right? So it was work and it was charity all at the same time. So the accusation is made in verse 2. The Pharisees immediately point out that the disciples have broken the law and because of that, Jesus is guilty. Jesus doesn't reprimand them. Jesus doesn't tell them to stop. Jesus seems to tolerate this behavior. Now, we all know that the Old Testament teaches that the Sabbath is a day of rest, and we are not to work on it, right? It's in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. You can look it up for yourself. Now, the question that the Bible asks is, what does it mean by rest? What does it mean by work? Now, on the one hand, we, we know what it means. On the other hand, when you get down to writing the regulation, it gets quite difficult. For example, when I was growing up, resting on the Sabbath meant... Above all else, thou shalt not mow the yard. 
You are not allowed to do that whatsoever. In fact, uh, I'm glad we lived out in the country because if we lived in the Frankfurt suburbs, my parents, the things they would say, would have said to our neighbors who were mowing the yards on Sunday would not have been very Christian-like, okay? I mean, all the time, we were driving down the road, uh, you know, working the car, and we'd look over here and see someone, you know, uh, 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 Miss Francis or whoever, mowing the yard on Sunday. The things they'd say in the car, I just can't believe they know better, and that's church day, right? You don't mow the yard on, on a Sunday. You just don't do that. In fact, one time, Mom and Dad were so mad at my brother and I, furious with us. It's hard telling what we, we, we were doing or what we were falsely accused of doing. They were so mad, they told us, go out there and mow the yard, but it's a Sunday. I don't care. I don't care. I just go outside and do something productive, right? So we did. And the lawnmower broke down so bad, my mechanic father could not fix it. We have yet to ever mow the yard on a Sunday, right? All right, Jesus, we get it. We are under your judgment. We repent in tears and ashes. The religious elites had developed a complicated and detailed list of laws to clarify the meaning of that word. And that is what regulations are. You have the law, and these regulations come to clarify what certain words mean and don't mean. For example, you couldn't eat an egg laid on the Sabbath because that egg involved work. You do with that information whatever it is you want. That is free. You can put that in your back pocket. Whenever there's this awkward silence you know, at work, you can pull that out. Hey, did you know? Back in biblical times, you couldn't eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath. John MacArthur, in his sermon of this text, provides 39 things that were forbidden. Here it is. Again, this is all for your viewing pleasure. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sifting, grinding, sifting with the sieve, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning wool, putting in the weaver's loom, making two threads, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot or undoing it, sewing two sticks, tearing in order to sew two, two stitches, catching deer or killing. Uh, if we were in Owen County, that one would have offended everybody. Uh, I don't know how many times I would show up to church and right as church would end, one of my youth would say, Brother Cal, Brother Cal, i got to show you something about the truck, which I already knew what that was, right? It was a dead deer, just, just a dead deer waiting for us to finish church. <laughs> you know? um, skinning, salting the deer, preparing its skin, scraping off its hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, scraping in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, extinguishing or lightning, lighting fire, I have questions there. Beating with a hammer, carrying a possession, and it goes on and on and on. He details. What this shows is that the real debate here isn't over biblical law, but over man-made religious rules. So Jesus gives an answer in verse 3 to 8, and he really gives three answers, three responses. The first is proper authority. And what he does is he goes back to the story that we looked at some time ago, 1 Samuel 1, where Dave and his followers are starving, and the only bread nearby is the show bread, a bread that, that it is in the sacred, it's the sacred bread of presence. It's laid in the tabernacle, and only the priest has access to this bread. But nevertheless, the priest, Ahimelech, offers it to David. He eats it and gives it to his men. What Jesus is showing is that David explicitly, by their definition, disobey the law. No one has the right to that bread except for the priests. Yet, because of the nature of them being hungry and starving, that there was room for David to do this. In fact, although rigorous would say that David broke the law, 
Traditionalists have always said, no, David, in this one instance, did not break the law. And his point is, is that Jesus as the son of David is greater than David. If the great David could profane bread intended to be sacrificed to God, how much more so can the Messiah as the son of David be allowed to observe the Sabbath less rigorously than was demanded by the extreme Pharisees, right? That's the point. If David can get away with this, and I don't see you harping on David, why can't the heir to his throne, why can't the Messiah? Thus we see here Jesus is claiming for himself to be greater than David himself. He is the source of rest, not the law. Notice he also points out their hypocrisy. If everyone must rest, what are we to do with those who are commissioned by God to break it in order to serve others? People like the Pharisees. One of the jokes I've made for years, really since I've been in ministry, is that when someone apologized saying, sorry I wasn't at church, I had a work Sunday. And I, and I like to say, well, I understand. I work every Sunday. You don't see me missing church, right? But that's the point Jesus is making here. The priests had to work on the Sabbath. They offered necessary functions on the Sabbath that were were just necessary. The Pharisees, the ones complaining about Jesus breaking the Sabbath, themselves, by the rule of the law, break the Sabbath. Keeping fires going, making sacrifices, all of that is work. And if all work is sinful on the Sabbath, then they are riddled with it. In fact, notice what what he says there, verse 6. I tell you, someone greater than the temple is here. What amazing language that is. He's saying that I am greater than the system you serve. Not only am I greater than David, I am greater than the temple itself. The temple was a place where God dwelt. This is clearly a tremendous claim of deity. So Jesus is not only greater than David, he's greater than the temple. The third argument he makes is love. Love. In verse 7, he quotes from Hosea 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, he had done this back in chapter 9, verse 13 as well. So his point is, is that you guys are worried worried about the rule of law and that every little uh, I has to be dotted, every T has to be crossed, everything has to be perfect or else we have anarchy. He said, but if you actually read the Bible, the emphasis is on love and justice, right? So so am I here violating my love of God or my love of neighbor by by allowing the disciples to pull a few grains off the wheat? And Jesus would say no. In fact, he said, "But, but if you kept my disciples from eating of the grain when they are starving, you're actually violating the law of love. That is to love neighbor. And so in all of this, you see there in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is making one significant argument. He is the divine Lord in flesh, and he is therefore greater than any man-made rule. He is the Lord of David. He is the true and greater David. Thus, if it is justice you are looking for, you should come to Jesus. He's the Lord or the true and greater temple. That is to say that if it is worship you are looking for, you should turn to Jesus. And finally, he is the Lord that is the true and greater Sabbath, which means that if it is rest you are looking for, 
You will find it only in Jesus. Now, to add, um, to, to, to antagonize them more, Jesus then turns in verse 9 to heal a man on the Sabbath. He knows exactly what is going to happen here. He then turns to a man with a withered hand to heal him. Now, according to the religious elites, death was the only justification for the most part one had for treating someone on the Sabbath uh, under uh, uh, rabbinic law. That is, if someone was in a very serious condition, that death was a genuine threat they had, then maybe you could intervene. Or if they had died and you had to go through a process there, then maybe you can intervene. This guy has a withered hand. He is not dead. But Jesus doesn't care about that. Now, Jesus could have waited till the next day to, to heal him, right? He could have. But no, Jesus purposely chooses to heal the man on the Sabbath. And the, the, the religious elites are following him, hoping he will heal the man on the Sabbath. Not because he wants the man's withered hand to be better, but so that they can have a, a cause to accuse not just the disciples, but Jesus himself. So, you get it there in verse 11 to 13 is, is the story and the response. Right? Uh, Jesus says, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It really comes down to this. Is the point of the law to do good or to do bad? It really is that simple. Is the point of the law to do good or to do bad? Think about it. We have laws in our book that you may do something that, according to law, is bad, but in this case is good. Protecting your family, right? That may require doing something bad, but in the eyes of law, that is actually a good thing. You should protect your family, right? We, we get this, okay? Um, whenever my wife went into labor, I drove a, a little above the, 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 the speed limit, right? Through Owensboro, in the middle of the, not Owensboro, to Owensboro, but through uh, Fordsville. There were two police officers at the local, we call it the Fordsville Walmart, it's a dollar store. And, and, uh, and we got four ways home. My wife was like, oh, no, 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 we can't get pulled over while I'm in labor. I'm like, they can escort us. I hope they see us driving too fast, right? I'll pull out my arms out. Wife in labor, move, right? And we'll go, right? Now, you shouldn't break the speed limit when the cops are around, right? That's bad. <laughs> but getting to the hospital... For the sake of your wife and daughter, that, that's a good thing, right? So the question is, 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 is the law there to do good or bad? The example he gives is that of a sheep. Pretty straightforward, right? None of us would, would, would say, look, I grew up in a religious household, uh, and we took the, the Sabbath very seriously, especially when we came to mow in the yard. But if, if Farmer Don's cattle was in labor, right, we would call Farmer Don and say, Farmer Don, cattle's in labor. You better get over here. Now, Farmer Don may be taking his Sunday afternoon nap. But you got to go take care of his cattle. We understand that is really kind of common sense, isn't it? So Jesus then asked, which is more valuable, the life of a man or that sheep? The answer should be obvious. And notice here, if Jesus had ignored the man, regardless of the day in which he meets him, would he not have broken the law of love? A withered hand is bad, reflects a fallen world. A healed hand is good, reflects Christ encroaching on this fallen world. One is bad, one is good. When in doubt, do the gooder thing, not the badder thing, right? Is that language you Eastern Kentucky people can, can understand, right? Do the gooder thing. 
So verse 13, Jesus healed. The word there is restored. He restored the man's hands. And of course, inevitably, verse 14, the Pharisees go out and conspire against him to destroy him. Then notice what Jesus does. The passage turns towards a hymn. We've seen the harassment and the healing that we then get to heal. Verse 15 is very similar to other summary statements we've seen. Jesus goes from there and many follow him and he heals many, right? And um, this was all to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew is quoted from Isaiah 42. It's the longest uh, passage that Matthew quotes from the Old Testament. Matthew's always quoting from the Old Testament. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, so let me just summarize what you have there. Behold my servant. You could translate that son. Behold my son whom I have chosen. You tell me if this language sounds familiar. My beloved or my son with whom my soul is pleased. It's not an accident. He's borrowing language from Isaiah that shows up at the the, uh, baptism of Jesus that then comes here in the context of rest and restoration. In verse 18 and 19, he he talks about proclaiming justice. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And what would this look like? He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will come to proclaim justice, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well, because his gospel is universal. We can debate verse 20 all we want about the bruised reed and all that, but it is very clear is that all of this is summarized in what we saw at the end of chapter 11. Remember that Jesus is gentle and humble at heart, though he will condemn and confront sinners when necessary. But the point of what you have at the end of chapter 11 and here at the end of our passage of chapter 12, where where the point is, is that Christ is the one whom the prophets foretold. In him you find your rest. In fact, isn't that what we see in verse 21? In his name, the Gentiles will find their hope. You see it here that, that everything the Pharisees is doing is playing into Jesus' hand to demonstrate that if it's hope that you're looking for, if it's peace that you're longing for, if it's worship that you're pursuing, if it's rest that you desire, the answer is simply to come. Come to Christ whose, whose burden he can carry, your burden he can carry, and he can lift it off of you. This entire text has been about true rest with two competing worldviews. The gospel of man demands efforts, whereas the gospel of Jesus demands faith. The problem is often we think that we can work our way into rest, strive our way into peace, fight our way into contentment, and we wonder why it seems like we can't work hard enough, we can't fight hard enough, we can't strive long enough, and we wonder why it is we're always stressed out, we're always anxious, and we're always exhausted. But therein is Christ, who is Lord of the Sabbath, true and greater David, true and greater temple himself. And all he says is, come, come. What is demanded is not a resume or effort or work or anything. What is demanded is simply faith. That in Him you will find rest. Man-centered worldviews will place a burden upon you whereby rest will never be found. Can I tell you one of the reasons why you'll never find rest in man-made religion, whether it's a traditional religion or a secular religion? And that is one of the reasons we can look at a thousand. One of the reasons is because in those worldviews, you will never find forgiveness. You'll never find it. 
If you tweeted something 10 years ago, I hope you've enjoyed the last 10 years because your life is over. If you said something wrong in that committee meeting, I hope you've enjoyed your time in this church, but, 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 but you will not find forgiveness. In strict religion, you will not find religion, or you will not find forgiveness. But in Christ, the greatest burden upon our soul, sin and shame and guilt and fear, all of it is satisfied. So we can either strive and pull and push and try to earn our way to rest, or we can find a rest that is better, and that is deeper, that the Hebrews call shalom, an abiding peace that circumstances cannot harm. So in Christ, we have rest. So I beg of you this morning that you would lay your burdens and your sins at the cross. There's no need for you to carry them anymore. Trust in his sovereign care over your life, your family, your marriage, your children, your grandchildren, your career, your education, your stress, your struggles, your sufferings. Trust in his sovereign care. Knowing that as the true and greater David, he will rule with justice and honor and peace and mercy. It's the true and greater temple. He will offer an abundance of grace and forgiveness. As a true and greater Sabbath, he will offer you a peace that surpasses all of our circumstances and all of our comprehension. But first, you must come, all you who are heavy laden, and in him you will find your rest. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would be generous to us yet.